Hi, welcome to Leadership with Randy. I'm Randy Powell. And this sort of paralleled our advances technologically. It seemed like the more technologically advanced we became, you know, one step forward for technology, two steps backwards from, for humanity. And there seemed to have been sort of a, a, a cultural emptiness that was happening. Most of us would never willingly give our families or ourselves something every day that is known to be harmful but have perhaps unknowingly been doing so daily in our technological age dominated by cell phones and social media. We're joined today by Dr. Nicholas Carderas, author of Glow Kids and founder of Omega Recovery, Maui Recovery, and Launch House. Dr. Carderas has extensive experience in addressing addiction and recovery and educates us on the research around how technology is damaging the physical development of our kids' brains, harming our decision-making skills, hampering our creativity, and increasing our feelings of depression. Let's go talk to Dr. Carderas. Good morning. Thanks for uh, joining us, and it's good to see everyone again. And I've been excited for some time to spend time with uh, Dr. Nicholas Carderas, who is the author of Glow Kids, a fascinating and terrifying uh, book all at the same time. <laughs> And then you got a new book that's coming out later that we can talk about as well, that I think you continue to expound on this theme of these modern day addictions and the uh, uh, minefield that we're walking through every day. Mm -hmm. uh, but you've got a really fascinating story. I, I want to go back and start first just about your early journey and growing up in New York and some of your early inspirations and that you actually died and how that inspired some of the work you do today. So why don't you share with everybody a little bit about your history? Yeah. Yeah. Th thank you. Um, and by the way, the new book really kind of dives deeper into uh, social media and the, uh, the toxin and the toxic effect of, uh, of, of that and not just social media, but how it changes and shapes people, especially young people, their identity, their, um, the whole, the whole gamut of issues that are involved with social media specifically. Um, yeah, I was, I was, uh, raised in New York, the son of uh, Greek immigrants and, um, really hardworking parents. And I uh, did well in school academically and kind of a classic, uh, overachiever we used to say you know overachievers from with an inferiority complex because i came from pretty humble pretty humble background and um the the short version of it is i got into good schools i went to, to the bronx high school of science and i got into uh, a, a nice ivy league school um from very humble beginnings and um after graduate school i was really restless this was the early 80s in new york city and i not after graduate school after uh undergraduate school and all my friends were going off to graduate school and I just was restless and I wanted to kind of work and see the world and I had a background I played a lot of sports as a kid I played you know basketball uh, I played basketball soccer football track and um and I was a national AAU karate champion so because of my martial arts background I started getting some part-time work after college in the New York City restaurant nightclub world as a doorman and then as a young kid in the mid 80s in new york city that was an exciting world it was a world populated by um you know some famous people and some exciting uh situations and so i got sucked into that world for a period of time in my life and that world was fraught with um uh seductive ego candy 
uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and and all of and all of those types of temptations. And uh, in pretty short order, well, I wound up opening up my own um, venues. Um, I was the youngest nightclub owner in New York City when I was 24, just through hard work and hustle. But as I said, I developed some of these bad habits, and so I developed my own pretty lethal uh, addiction. Uh, it started innocently with alcohol and progressed from there. And uh, in the matter of a few short years, I was living the high life while being high. And um, I had a lot of shame with that because, again, I came from a very, um, very strict um, um, Greek immigrant background. So um, I had fallen pretty far from the morals and sort of the ethical life that I knew was the correct life. And, uh, and eventually that life led me to a pretty pronounced bottom. Um, I was, you know, at that point I was using substances that were very dangerous. And this was before the days of Narcan and and, um, and the latest revival techniques. And I wound up in having a, a fatal overdose. Uh, this was uh, over, well, I just celebrated uh, 22 years of sobriety uh, last Sunday, as a matter of fact. So this was a, a while ago. And um, yeah, I was asystolic for over an hour. My heart had stopped. I was in a coma for two weeks at Cornell Presbyterian in New York. Uh, it was as bad as it can get. And I didn't have the classic white light experience. I didn't see the white light or my loved ones. But when I emerged from that coma, barely, um, again, my heart had stopped for over an hour. So that at that hospital that I was at, I had set some sort of a record and I was considered a medical medical miracle because they thought I would I was going to be in a vegetative state if I did survive. Um, and I did have, uh, I suffered some permanent hearing loss after that coma, but that was, that was a small price to pay for you know, surviving basically my mental faculties intact. Um, so I had a near-death experience without the white light, but with the transformation part. Uh, when I woke up from that coma, I realized I wasn't meant to be put on this earth just to be in that empty world. So I had what you might call an early existential crisis. At that point, I was 35 years old. I'm, um, I'm approaching 59 now. So, um, and I knew in, in the deepest part of my soul that I needed to discover what the more was to life. What was the nature of existence? Why were we put on this earth? So I just started going back to the library and exploring books on philosophy and comparative religions and eventually wound up going back to graduate school and got a degree in social work and my, my doctorate in psychology. And my emphasis was really exploring the things that give people meaning in their lives. Um, what is it that keeps people moving forward? So a lot of, you know, some of you may be familiar with Viktor Frankl and Man's Search for Meaning, a lot of work that way, a lot of in discovering. Um, how people can really move forward. And, and I discovered in working with people that were struggling, they, they, most of them had lost, <clears throat> excuse me, a sense of purpose and meaning in their lives. It was a deficit of meaning and purpose that would lead to some of these bad outcomes. And that was true in my case as well. And so that led me to, I wrote, first I wrote a book about, um, uh, my dissertation was about that. My dissertation looked at how uh, classical philosophy can be transformative in a person's life. And that means studying the ancients um, from Socrates to Plato and how um, really immersing yourself in that kind of wisdom can be uh, life-changing. 
And then, and then, of course, I started working with people struggling with various addictions and mental health issues. I became a professor at the university that I got my degree from. Did that for 10 years, started running treatment programs around the country and really discovered that there was a crisis of meaning happening. Um, and this sort of paralleled our advances technologically. It seemed like the more technologically advanced we became, you know, one step forward for technology, two steps backwards from, for humanity. And there seemed to have been sort of a, a, a cultural emptiness that was happening. We were awash in, you know, let's call it digital masturbation. And, um, and, and yet people were feeling depressed and more alone, more anxious. And, and at the same time, this is now about 12, 13, 14 years ago, I was working a lot with young people, with teenagers and adolescents. And that's when I started really seeing that this new digital uh, seduction, this new digital candy was, was more problematic than people, I think, were beginning to understand. So, so that's the short version of kind of a long 20-year process. And I hope I answered your question, but I'll leave it at that for now. Oh, that's great. So really, coming out of your own addiction guided you to help others with their addictions. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, kind of diving into glow kids, which I know the focus of that book is our kids, but when I read it, I see adults with the same problem. So I don't think this is a, a kid problem, although your book, you know, honed in on that as an area where we could protect kids, but talk a little bit about the science around these addictions. I think it's shocking when you read this of, dopamine levels equivalent to having sex every day or on par with taking cocaine. And mm -hmm. if our kids were taking cocaine every day, we would probably all be scrambling to get them help, but we're handing them cell phones and notepads yeah. And, yeah. and just handing them cocaine or telling them to have sex every day as a, as mm -hmm. a second grader. Talk a little bit about the science of what you've discovered yep. and your research has revealed. Yeah, that, that was the shocking part. It was, um, and, and I think what happened, and I think what's fair to say is that, you know, we became so, um, Randy, I think we became so smitten and had such a tech love affair with our new devices, right? It was new for all of us. When, when really, when, when, you, when we look at our technological love affair, it's really only been in the last 10 to 15 years, iPads, iPhones, Chromebooks. You know, the, the before times, the analog times were not that long ago. So most of us are not digital natives. Most of us are new to the dance, uh, but our but our children aren't. I have two 15-year-old twin sons. You know, I have I've some skin in the game as a parent as well. And um, and so I think we were all, oh, shucks, look how great these things are, and not realizing we were letting a digital fox into the chicken coop that was having some pretty significant neurological, clinical, and socio, socio, social development impact. And then the research was there. What, was I, what I was surprised about was how much research was actually out there, uh, peer-reviewed, and it was really under the radar. Because again, we were all too busy saying, look how neat these phones are, that we were under aware of how problematic these were, especially for young developing brains. And, and so I first really, my first, you know, Houston, we have a problem moment was 12, I, told, I write about this in Glow Kids, I had a young man who was sent into my office who was in a full-blown psychotic state. 
And he was in the matrix. He was in his game world. He couldn't discern where reality ended and where his game began. And he had been playing his game, World of Warcraft, for 10, 12 hours a night for multiple days in a row and had been sleep deprived and, and sleep deprivation and excessive screen time are not a good combination. And so he was fully psychotic. He didn't know where he was. He thought he was in the game, didn't have any history of mental illness, no family history of mental illness. And he had to be sent to the psychiatric hospital uh, because his, his sentence to me was, are we still in the game? And uh, no, we're not still in the game. And it was shocking to me because that kind of dissociation, or we call it derealization, when you don't know what's real anymore. I had seen that as a clinician working with substance addiction with things like crystal meth psychosis or the proverbial bad acid trip. But I'd never seen somebody dissociate from reality from a screen experience. And that was just the first of many. And that was... A, and when I reviewed some of the literature, I'd seen that, that this is, was a phenomenon that had been documented. Um, so essentially what happens is the screen time is a stimulant that affects the brain in the same way that other stimulants do. So when we think of stimulants at the low end of the spectrum, we think of coffee, then we think of you know, increasingly stimulants like cocaine and crystal meth. And so stimulants essentially tickle our dopamine uh, and dopamine is the feel-good neurotransmitter. And, and you mentioned the thing with it, where it's analogous to sex. There was a study going way back to 1998. It was Dr. Cope who had studied a, a, a back in uh, back in 98 in the Journal of Nature. Um, and he looked at different behaviors and substances and how much they raised our dopamine levels. Because how much something raises your dopamine tends to correlate with its addictive potential. Um, so... In the study, he found that things like craving foods, like chocolate, raise our dopamine 50%. Uh, sexual activities raise our dopamine 100%. Cocaine raises dopamine 300%. Well, in that 1998 study, where these were 1998 video games, not nearly the um, arousal factor of 2022 video games, they raised dopamine 100%, the same amount as a sexual activity. The problem, well, that in and of itself is a problem, but the problem is how long our kids are playing video games for. Um, not to be crude, but typically sexual encounters tend to be short-lived, um, where a, a young person could be playing a video game for, I've had, in my treatment program, I've had gamers who have played for not only 10, 12, 14 hours a day, but multiple days in a row, uh, where they haven't slept for three or four days. So you're, you're spiking dopamine in a way that's very unhealthy, and, and now you're creating habituation. It's called the dopamine reward loop. Now you have young people who are chasing that hyper-arousing, dopaminergic, what we call dopaminergic experience, in the same way that a cocaine addict would. Uh, what we know from studying um, chronic addiction, though, is that uh, this was the work from Dr. Bartzokas at UCLA, it does begin to affect the neurophysiology of the brain. So a chronic substance addict begins to have a compromised prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is behind our forehead. That's the part of our brain that is the executive functioning part of our brain. It determines um, our impulse control, our decision-making. With chronic substance addicts, the, that part of the brain begins to actually physically shrink um, it's called the DGM, the dense gray matter of the frontal cortex atrophies. And, and so that 
further compromises good decision-making. So it's kind of a catch-22 for drug addicts. They're in this impulsive state of just wanting to feel the sensation of their drug, and, and yet they have a compromised uh, decision-making mechanism. Um, in, in neuroscience, we call that, break, that we call that the breaking mechanism of the brain, our ability to say, whoa, I may have the impulse to engage in this behavior, but there's that part of our brain that says, whoa, 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 maybe not a good idea. Well, we've seen that same impact with excessive screen time and kids, that part of their brain begins to shrink. And so now we have kids who are um, being wired for poor decision-making and essentially impulsivity. Um, so kids who are being raised on a high screen diet, you know, kids who have at two years old or having an iPad or a Chromebook, um, essentially we're priming them for impulsivity, not only neurophysiologically, but we're getting them habituated to very um, high, what we call high, high stimulation screen experiences. And so without that, kids now become really bored when they're doing anything else. So now you have a competition for this really arousing uh, dopamine activating experience. So when the kid is sitting in the classroom and their teacher is talking, the teacher can't compete with Grand Theft Auto or some of these really powerful uh, digital experiences and, and nor can anything else, nor can playing sports, nor can um, a walk in nature, all the things that we know make a kid healthy and happy are now being um, a shadow is being cast on them because of this highly arousing experience that's highly habituating. You know, you mentioned the, uh, the physical changes in the brain. And I recall there was a study in your book, I believe it was in Indiana, Indiana of University like 20 to 30 year olds and MRIs of a population that didn't play games and that did play games for just one week. And there was yeah. visible impact, right? Good job. Oh my God, you remember the specific studies. Yeah, well done. Um, <laughs> yeah, there was a, the, I particularly like that study because that was one of, there, there were, there've been about over 20 fMRI studies that have looked at the brain changes of screen time. But that particular study, Indiana University School of Medicine, and Dr. Wang, um, why I particularly thought that that was really effective is they took non-gamers and they did a pre-study fMRI on this population of quote because one of the one of the um, pushbacks on some of the MRI studies is okay these kids who are gamers they have smaller prefrontal cortexes but maybe they were born that way maybe they're born impulsive and that's why they're gaming so much so it's a little bit of a chicken or the egg argument. And the Indiana study disproved that because it took healthy brains, healthy young people who weren't gamers, they did an fMRI to show that their brains weren't compromised, and then they had them game for one week, then two weeks, and then they did a post-fMRI. And they showed, I mean, that was the amazing part. They showed measurable, significant changes after just one. So they told these non-gamers, these young men, to play for 10 hours a week. And by, by the standards of some of the young people that I treat, 10 hours a week is like a walk in the park. It's moderate gaming usage. And yet it had a pretty significant effect on their prefrontal cortex. And then even more so after two weeks. And then, so that's why that was a particularly powerful study. It showed in a pretty uh, short snapshot 
what impact that could happen. And then the question that Big's asking is what happens after two years, 10 years, 15 years? We have no idea. We have no idea longitudinally what's happening long term with this excessive screen love affair. Have you uh, seen much research or done much research on how uh, these effects might be exacerbated by trauma? You know, Mike works with folks that have been uh, in trauma of combat. You've got maybe people that grew up in a traumatic childhood background, or they've had bad experiences in life. How much does trauma and stress exacerbate this technology addiction? Yeah, I think we can put that in the same under the same umbrellas, all addictions that are exacerbated by trauma, exacerbated that are um, the underlying cause might be escape from traumatic uh, discomfort. Um, you know, we, we know that generally speaking, if you've suffered trauma, you have much higher likelihood to want to self-medicate that pain through any kind of substance escape. So um, any kind of addiction and, and screen addiction falls under the umbrella of what's what are called process addictions or behavioral addictions, the same categories, gambling and sex and shopaholics. And so you have the bucket of substance addictions and then you have the bucket of process addictions and they are all um, potentially you're, you're much more predisposed to escape in those kinds of behaviors if you've suffered from trauma. So trauma is a very uh, large correlate to that. And that's why in our treatment program, we're one of the few treatment programs that I uh, developed where we treat tech addiction as a primary issue, but we treat it with trauma-informed therapy where we, you know, if there is trauma, you have to address that before you can meaningfully address the gravitational pull towards gaming. Um, a lot of our young people also are struggling with the sense of, as I mentioned before, purpose and meaning. This is a really hard time to be a young person. There's so much information overload, so much toxic news, social media is the other disaster that's happening here. So a lot of our young people who don't have a clear sense of identity or clear sense of who they are, are now either escaping in synthetic digital worlds or social media is now blurring, confusing, creating identities that are um, really uh, oftentimes pathological. Um, you know, in the new book, Digital Madness, I've looked at social media spreading psychiatric disorders literally like a digital um, virus spreader. Um, there, in, during COVID, uh, we were seeing all around the country that young people were beginning to develop psychiatric disorders that they had seen influencers have or mimic uh, online. So there was a phenomenon with TikTok and Tourette's disorder, where there were three Tourette's, Tourette's, there were three TikTok influencers that claimed to have Tourette's syndrome. I don't even think they have Tourette's syndrome because I watched their videos, but they would do these very performative psychiatric symptoms on their TikTok videos. And, you know, as we know, the, the coin of the realm in social media is followers and what gets more followers, but over the top behavior, really sort of, um, you know, the, the, the boring sort of uh, intellectual reflective uh, influencer is not going to get any followers, but the really, you know, crazy over the top person is going to get millions of followers. So there were these three influencers who were having what I call performative Tourette syndrome. 
but they had millions and millions of followers and over 2 billion views on their videos. And what started happening is their followers started demonstrating Tourette's syndrome. And these were adolescent females predominantly. And so these pediatricians around the country started scratching their heads and saying, why are teenage, why are female teenagers all of a sudden showing Tourette's disorder, which tends to be male to female, three to one, and tends to be diagnosed in early childhood? Why are we having an adolescent onset female epidemic of Tourette's syndrome? And when they drilled down, they found out that they were all followers of these Tourette's influencers. And so this was what we call a sociogenic effect or a social contagion effect, copycat, a copycat syndrome. And we saw that with Tourette's syndrome. We saw that with dissociative disorder. We used to call that multiple personality disorder. We're seeing that with borderline personality disorder. I'm convinced that a lot of the gender dysphoria we're seeing is quite a bit of this as well. So this is another sort of branch of problem um, spread that we're seeing through this, what I'm calling a digital virus, a psychiatric virus spread by digital means. If any of you have questions, type in the chat so we can get you on. Um, you know, there's an awful lot of conversation now, particularly post-COVID, around depression and mental health. And you've got pre-COVID studies of the dramatic impact of technology on mental health. I'm assuming that's only gotten worse. Yeah, yeah. During COVID, screen time doubled and depression tripled, uh, which is a pretty uh, mind-blowing number. Pre-COVID, the, the most recent statistics before COVID, so 2019 mental health stats were at the all-time worst since we've been measuring psychiatric statistics. So 2019... We had the highest rates of suicide. There were over 42,000 suicides. We had the highest rates of overdose, over 70,000 overdoses. We had the highest anxiety, depression, and ADHD rates ever. And then COVID only amplified all of those. And, and all those psychiatric metrics were uh, uh, disproportionately affecting young people under 35. And, and so... We, so there were some specific studies that started looking at the correlation between depression and screen time. Um, so there's a couple of things that we have to think about it. as a species, we're hardwired to be social. The tribe survived evolutionarily, right? Because we weren't the strongest or the fastest, but we were strong in numbers. Our, our tribalism gave us strength and allowed us to survive in the, in the uh, caveman times. And so it's in our psychological DNA to be social. And, and it's, also in our, um, it's, in, it's in also in our DNA to be physically active. And in fact, when people suffer from clinical depression, the first two things that most good psychologists will prescribe that, that are non-pharmacological treatments will be some kind of social socialization and some kind of physical activity because physical activity raises uh, dopamine levels raises serotonin levels, and um, and there have been quite a few studies about physical activity, and socialization, and depression. Well, if you think about what technology does, it makes us sedentary, and it makes us less face-to-face -face interactive. So it's essentially been a nuclear bomb on these two essential human needs that we have to be physically active and to be uh, connected with one another, genuinely connected, because digital connection is not the same as face-to-face -face connection. 
And so that's, so not only do we see that as a depression inducing, but then there's something also called the comparison effect. And, and in about five or six studies that have looked at Facebook and other uh, social media platforms, um, we tend, the one study was so interesting, the more Facebook friends a person had, the higher the likelihood of clinical depression uh, that they would have because you had more people to compare yourself to. And so the comparison effect is sort of this idea that um, we have this, these re refractive uh, or reflective mirrors uh, of other people's idealized lives looking back at us. And if we're going through a difficult point in our life, if we're struggling or going through a hard time, and all of a sudden I'm going through my, my news feed and I'm seeing idealized happy pictures and happy pictures of other people's social media pages, it's going to make me feel worse. It's going to make me feel that, boy, it's my life, my losers, my life miserable. So it amplifies my, my depression rather than helps create any sort of connectivity or, or a good thing. So that, that's a big part of the depression piece. Wow. Let's go to uh, Steve. Thank you, Randy, for another great les lessons in leadership. Wow, Nicholas, uh, the brain is the most amazing thing. And uh, now you've got me worried about me doing video games, but maybe, uh, maybe I don't know if that's good for my brain or bad for it, but I'm more concerned about uh, grandchildren, actually. And uh, how much complicity is there in parents uh, to this problem and what recommendations do you have uh, for them to break this uh, cycle? Let me just, just really quick on the first part that you mentioned, we're all impacted by our te technological love affair, no matter what age we are. So it's interesting because I, you know, I do a lot of speaking at uh, conferences and mental health conferences or education conferences. And I usually ask if there's a room of 200 people, I'll ask how, how many of us can remember 10 phone numbers. Um, and, and usually uh, maybe there's one or two people in the room that can actually re recall 10 phone numbers. And what we've done is we've, we've um, things that used to be normal memory skills or things that we used to do internally, we've now offloaded on our smartphones. So our smartphone is our memory tool for us. And, that, and memory tends to be, they've done research on this, our memory tends to still grow as a muscle in the hippocampus across our lifetime. So it's use it or lose it. So if we start, if we stop relying on our memory, if we stop relying on, you know, how to use a map and GPS, you know, we're so coddled by our technology, some of our other skills do atrophy over time. Um, but, but back to your main question about, you know, kids and as parents, the the main there, there are a couple of things again as i mentioned i'm a parent of 15 year olds it's important how we model our technological usage right we can't not practice what we preach we can't tell our kids to get off their devices while we're staring at our screen and we're spotting our kids you know i was at the airport last week and i see this all the time you know there's a a parent traveling with a child the child is trying to get the parent's attention the parents on their phone and they're swatting their child away and, and so that does two things. Not only does it tell the child that, you know, monkey see, monkey do. We know from social learning theory that 
children mimic their parents, but it does something else really even more damaging. We know from attachment theory that it's important the, the quality of the connection that we have with our kids. And, and what they found was that if we're in a room with our kids, but we're not fully present, it's more impactful than if we weren't even there. It'd be better to just walk out of the room or go get a pack of cigarettes, as the old saying used to go, rather than being in a room with your child and ignoring them in deference of your device. Because now your child is getting the message, I'm not, I'm not more important than this device. And that creates a real sense of self-concept issue for the child. So spend present time with our children. It's not enough to spend quantity time with our kids. We have to spend quality time with our kids doing things that are connecting and engaging and modeling our behavior. And the main thing with technology that I try to do with my own kids is delay, 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 delay. Um, I talk about age-appropriate technology. Allow our children's brains to develop as healthy and as normally as they can before we drop the digital bomb into their lap. Um, there'll always be time for that. The, the false narrative, the false Kool-Aid that we've drank is that our kids are going to be behind. If we don't give our kid a, a Chromebook in first grade, they're somehow going to be behind. Where There's every educational study shows no benefit to early screen time. And now we know the COVID experiment with Zoom learning was a disaster. And, and the best thing that you can do to a child's neurological development is allow them to be bored because boredom then leads to uh, uh, um, active imagination and creative play. And creative play is what really fires up the neurosynaptic connections of children. So kids who play make-believe are really developing active imaginations and powerful minds. Kids who are sitting in little chairs and being sedated by high impact stimulation. And by the way, it's visual imagery that their brain isn't producing. Uh, a, an underappreciated aspect of this whole thing is how creativity dampening this is. Children don't develop, when I work with kids who've been raised on iPads, they don't have an imagination because all their imagery has been pre-baked for them. Sorry. Nicholas, I get all that. No, what I'm talking about is the parents are, uh, allowing the continuous use of video games, iPad, as a way for the children to get out of the way or not. You know, so it's a parental problem that I'm talking about, not well, correcting. Yeah, well, well, so I know the problem. That. How do you correct the parents? Well, right. So through education, right? Because either either parents. There's one of two parents. When I talk to parents, there's the guilty parents who look down because they know that they've been using the devices as a digital babysitter. Because let's face it, it's hard to raise kids without devices. You know, the kids are loud and we know that the device will sedate the child. And so we have to tell, let the parents know this is damaging. This is corrosive to the development of a young child. So parents have to be the adults in the room and not allow the devices before a certain age. Um, so it's it's education of the parent, which is why I wrote Glow Kids. I wrote Glow Kids as a primer that contained all the peer-reviewed evidence that a parent could read to help them guide their decision-making on when to give a device to their child. Because as you said, it, 
it's the parents, and it's the schools, by the way, because I've also worked with parents who were extremely tech cautious and try to do the right thing. And then all of a sudden, the school undermined their their uh, cautiousness by giving the child a device in pre, pre-K. So we have to advocate to pump the brakes on screen time for children and giving them devices too young or too soon. I want to jump down here to John and then we'll come back to Mike because I think John's question has a lot to do with the social pressures and probably both for kids and parents. John, if you want to ask your question. Oh, yeah. Uh, It's actually kind of, my question is kind of twofold. One, there's so many kids that have access so you know i have 11 year old stepson and and uh, a 13 year old uh, stepson and a lot of their social when they you know they don't see their friends all the time now they do go out and play and they do those things but they'll they'll get in these virtual uh like virtual reality with the oculus uh, and different things, and they they'll play with their friends. But if they don't, if they don't stay up to date, their friends will be like, "Oh, you don't know what you're," you know, and they'll feel like outcasts. They'll have the social pressure to also be on it. And then, you know, just I know you will answer that one, but what is the difference in in our generation? We were told, um, you know, TV is going to rot our brains. You know, like watching all these TV programs and and is there any uh, correlation with how TV was affected, affected us as children versus how uh, TikTok, social media, gaming is affecting uh, this generation? Yeah, so they've done research on modern screens versus, you know, rabbit ear television sets that we all grew up with. I, you know, I grew up on television as well. And and I, like you, I remember, you know, it's going to rot your brain and it'll be, you know, you'll have watched 20,000 murders on TV by the time you graduate from high school. But if you remember television back in the 70s and 80s, it was, um, you know, Starsky and Hutch. And it wasn't very, re- the, the violence wasn't very realistic. It was kind of bang, bang, pow, pow. The... So because we were raised on television, we tended to conflate modern screens with the, t- the TVs that we grew up with. So we were, as the adults in the room, I feel like we were a little asleep at the switch because what we didn't appreciate was that modern screen time, because of two primary differences, is qualitatively different to how it's affecting and more significantly affecting kids. Um, when you and I were watching TVs growing up, it was a passive viewing experience right? The TV was in the living room. We sat on the couch and we watched the screen, you know, eight feet away. And we were a viewer of the experience. Today, because of the interactive and immersive nature, like you mentioned, the kids playing games together, they're inside the experience. And so that immersive and interactive aspect of screen time makes it much more powerful psychodynamically. Um, and from a neuro impact state, um, so it's one thing to be watching uh, a, a car crash than to be inside the car crash uh, is the best way that I can put it. And, and the ubiquity, right? They're everywhere. We didn't used to carry around that old black and white TV set in our back pocket, right? So our kids are always carrying these things around. But your first point was spot on. That's the biggest challenge, right? This is part of our 
this is part of our culture now. And so any kid that's going to try to be an outlier is going to be sw- swimming against the tide. And you're right. A lot of kids will play uh, multiplayer online platforms, um, but they've measured that that level of um, socialization isn't the same as face-to-face socialization. It's a, it's a form of counterfeit connection. Um, you really, they've done a lot of research on this. You need to be face-to-face. You need to make genuine eye contact and be uh, physically with a person to get the benefit of the socialization. Um, and so our kids are thinking, hey, I'm socializing, but they're not really socializing in the way that you need to be socializing. But that's the single biggest challenge. You know, how do you tell a kid who's all their friends are online? You know, this is, you know, we're a social species. And one of the things that I try to do is, you know, it's healthy sometimes to try to find some like-minded friends. And, you know, I try to get my kids involved in a lot of sports, a lot of music, a lot of different things, because you don't want to just have your kids staring at a, you know, at a wall in their bedroom all day. But if you kind of backdoor other activities, then maybe they're not as, they won't get as sucked in. But even then I've seen kids who were, you know, varsity athletes and were uh, honor students. And one summer later they're, you know, um, let me back up. Most of the clients that we treat in my treatment program in Austin, Texas are failure to launch early college uh, flunkouts. These were kids who were smart, <clears throat> had good grades in high school. These were honor students, got into engineering programs in college. But once they left their parents' oversight and they went away to their dorm rooms, they then couldn't leave the dorm room. They got stuck inside on their devices and they were they started smoking too much pot. They got depressed. They were gaming. And next thing you know, they got that letter home saying, uh, we're respectfully asking you to take a semester off or you're being disenrolled because you're flunked out of school. And, and then they're back in mom and dad's basement. And then they send them to my program where we do a digital detox for six weeks and we try to get them back into healthy habits. And so they can relaunch back into their lives because now they've really fallen into the, the rabbit hole and now they've, you know, they've got consequences. But that's not all kids. You know, there, there, there are kids who, you know, can have some balance and play some video games and have that. The problem is it's a little bit of Russian roulette. You don't know which kid is going to be the kid that's going to not be able to stop in a healthy way and which kid uh, can or can't. Let's go to Mike. Doctor. Hey, great stuff. Um, So much to, so much to talk about. So as Randy kind of alluded to I run a program that helps veterans in first response to PTS. So we deal with, I'll say some of these things, uh, you know, I'd say the biggest commonalities are, you know, the self-efficacy and the self-actualization piece so the identity and things of that nature. You know, a lot of people beyond trauma, they're separated from the service, whether that's the military, you know, fire or police or what have you. And there's that accompanying loss of identity. Like, who am I now? I spent an entire career doing this. So to your point, that is, you know, I'll say very powerful and has a significant effect on people's psyche. But most of the people that I deal with, it's they're, they're much older versus younger people. That's an interesting problem in that people are really kind of, who am I? What, you know, what are my value systems? And I will say, I've got two young kids as well. So that's why this is very, you know, I'll say relevant and germane 
to, you know, to me and the way I'm thinking is, you know, even just value sets, you know, and I think that's one of the things that you, you touched upon tangentially, if at the very least is these kids are being subjected to um, social media, TikTok influencers and personalities. And, you know, I'll joke with my, with my boys, they'll be like, you know, well, this TikTok guy, he makes more money than you dad. And it's just like, right. But I got this thing called pride <laughs> you know, and I'm not living in my mommy's basement, you know, so he may make money and he may have more, you know, influencers or more, more, you know, but it's just like, what, what, what do these kids value nowadays? And, and you, you know, I, I could speak at length and go on and on and I'm just trying to, <laughs> I'll say, you know, concise, but the challenge for parents clearly is that dopamine thing. So I know Nira Yal has written a few books, mm -hmm. Hooked, Indistractable, mm -hmm. you know, and as a, as, as an engineer, that stuff is baked into these things. Right. This isn't happenstance that, that, you know, it has these effects. It's absolutely by design, which is, is disconcerting because, you know, <laughs> you're, you're going up against a lot. The other thing is, uh, you know, with the molecule of Moore is another book that I've been reading, which talks about the same thing. It's just like how dopamine really drives, really drives everything from exploration to innovation to a variety of things. But in this context, it can be, it can be horrible. It's the last thing. It's, it's hijacked. Dopamine, the dopamine response is hijacked in this setting. That's exactly it. And again, it's, it's by design. It's what sells, which again is, is, is very disconcerting. The other thing you talked about is, is that, uh, you know, and I think I put it in my comments, Robert Cialdini influence. Um, yeah, it's a, it's the copycat effect, you know, so-and-so does something, a celebrity, the example that he used, I hate to say was suicide is so Kurt Cobain kills himself and they saw a spate of suicide shortly thereafter. And it was like, why? Well, because I think a lot of people looked up to him and said, hey, if he can't handle it, he's a celebrity with lots of money and adoring fans. Who am I? So, yeah, it, you know. And what you're talking about too is uh, social clusters and that cluster effect. I write about that a lot in, in uh, the new book, Digital Madness. We see that a lot. And, and the, the psychology behind uh, when something happens is a cluster. Like there was a famous suicide outbreak in Bridgend, uh, Wales about 10 years ago where 26 teenagers killed themselves in a pretty small town in Wales in one 12 to 14 month period. And, you know, we're all social copycat animals. And it's, you know, like I give the analogy of like, you know, going skinny dipping. You or I may not be the first one to jump in the water naked. But once one person jumps in the water naked, it lowers the threshold for the next person to consider it normative behavior. And then once the second person does it, then the threshold gets lowered even more for the third person. And, and so social clusters like suicide clusters tend to work that way as well. It plants the seed of not just, oh, this is a possibility, but now it also plants the seed of normalcy. Oh, now four people have done it. Now, um, you know, it's in, we tend to then go down that path. Um, your point of the value system is so well taken. Um, you know, I raised my kids as tech cautiously as possible. They didn't video game, they didn't, but then we had COVID and then they did Zoom schooling for three quarters of a year and the destructive effects of that. So, you know, I would watch some movies and some uh, sports with my kids, but it's interesting. They did start watching YouTube and 
this idea of how many followers or how many views a YouTube had became their currency. So like if I wanted to show them an old movie, right? Like I wanted to show them uh, uh, singing in the rain. The first question would be how many, how many views does it have? That's how they would measure how, whether it was good or not. And so if it had like a hundred thousand views, my 15 year old would say, ah, this can't be any good. And I would say, no, it's, Something's value isn't by how many people have watched it, but it has shaped my children's value system just, just by that, just, just that uh, unfortunate piece. But um, yeah, it's, it's, so you're spot on with, with what you're saying. And say, this is by design. This is pretty toxic. You know, the documentary, The Social Dilemma, did a great job of pulling back the curtain from people in the industry saying, this was no, as you mentioned, this was no accident. This was by design. Uh, advanced behavior modification techniques. But I find that to be an effective strategy when I work with young people because they're, they're data thirsty. So a lot of the young people I work with, like, they're like, okay, sure. You know, rather than just saying your behavior is a problem, it's like, so look, some, some really smart people are manipulating you. And here's some of that information. Um, because every young person is independent and doesn't like to be told what to do, I find that to be a really, uh, that provocation to be, to have a good response. Like I'll challenge these young people and say, you're being played, you're being duped, you're being manipulated. And, and they're like, what? I'm being manipulated. And then you'll show them a video from uh, everybody from um, um, Tristan Harris or somebody saying, yeah, this is how we manipulate young people. And then that gives them a sense of, I don't want to be part of that. You know, that, that's an effective tool sometimes. No, that 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 is great. That is a great technique. Just one last thing, the boredom thing you touched upon. My boys constantly, my youngest particularly, is I'm bored, I'm bored, I'm bored. You know, and it's just like it's not incumbent upon your mother and me to, to entertain you that you've got endless things to do. And this, of course, is while we're traveling, you know, and he may not have access to, you know, Wi-Fi or what have you. And no, I've noticed that. I mean, th these kids can no longer entertain themselves and it's incumbent upon the parents to save them from the tyranny of boredom. And it's just like, go read or do something. It's just, you know, it's, it's unbelievable. It's that, you know, Hey, stillness is the key, you know, according to well, Ryan Mike, holiday. Mike, let me ask you the question because I've thought about this a lot because that's been our, why are we so, why is our generation of parents so uncomfortable with kids being bored? My parents certainly weren't that uncomfortable with my being bored. And I think most of us, you know, we either have parents that were working a lot or if we were bored, they were pretty comfortable with saying, go figure it out, you know, go do something. Yet for some reason, this generation, our generation of parents feel so uncomfortable with our kids' discomfort. And, and we're robbing them of opportunities to feel uncomfortable, to grow through that, to, to entertain themselves. I, and I'm not sure why that is. I don't know if you have any thoughts about why we're uncomfortable, that they're uncomfortable so much. No, I, I, I wish I wish I did. I mean, that's a great point, you know, is just, you know, hey, figure it out. You know, as long as it's not life limerines or, or, or eyesight, you know, an issue. It's like, hey, work through it. It's OK to be bored. But uh, no, absolutely. I mean, geez, I, I could speak on and on. I don't want to monopolize the conversation, but no, such a such a relevant problem. I grapple with it. The, the, the last, last thing I'll leave you with, um, um, you know, most of this, yeah, I feel is toxic. 
there are little inklings here there. My youngest is an example. He's a tinker, one of those makerspace type kids. He'll be on YouTube and it's just like, uh, but then he'll say, I saw this and now I want to try this and experiment. My note to myself is, you know, yeah, there's, there's boredom, you know, then discovery, discovery leads to creativity in that they'll discover something on YouTube, again, a makerspace person and say, I, I, I want to try that. And then he and I'll go out and do that stuff. And I'm like, it's not necessarily all bad. It's yeah. all, it, it really, it's a function of how it's applied. But again, like I said, last thing, it, it, some of that has to deal with propensity. Some people can manage that well, like alcohol. And then others, they have a little bit and, you know, they, 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 they fall off the wagon and you're just like trying to monitor that. And some of the other gentlemen pointed out, it's also a social thing. You can't say no video games for you, no PlayStation, no, no, whatever, because then they're social outcasts because they're not part of the club. It's just, you know, managing that is, is a challenge, but you know, obviously it's doable. You know, if you've got any techniques or recommendations other than just, you know, I'll say setting fixed times. You know. well, I did. I did get my kids got their first phones in. Uh, they're in ninth grade now. They got their first phones. We, we there's a movement called Wait Until Eight. Wait Until Eighth Grade where you don't get kids phones. And I'm a big fan of the Gab phone, G A B B phone. Um, I met the uh, the inventor of the Gab phone, but it's essentially the Gab phone is looks like a smartphone because you know the big stigma for kids used to be to get them the old flip phone, which was. <laughs> You know, there was no big, you would get beat up in the schoolyard if you had a flip phone. So um, the Gab phone looks like a smartphone. Uh, you could text, you could hear music, you could call, but it's not Wi-Fi compatible. So you can't game and you can't do all the other squirrely things on it. And so my kids got a Gab phone. So it kept, you know, they could text their friends. It kept them connected, but it, it didn't, you know, it, we didn't go Amish on it either. So, um, <laughs> yeah. No, I appreciate you. Thanks very much. Sure. You know, you hit on a second ago about the impact of the vanity metrics and driving more and more bizarre behavior. And you see that kids get more and more sexualized, more and more violent, more and more adventurous in their jumps and their leaps and their activities, because that's what drives the activity. What's the science behind that? Of what's going on there? Well, right now there's more sort of clinical observation, but I, you know, I'll give an example that's very controversial, and I write about it in my new book. But the even the the huge spike in gender dysphoria, you know, let's call it the trans phenomenon that's happening now. And I know this is a a third rail that you know we almost watch ourselves before we get you know taken off this platform right now. But um, there's always been a, a very small percentage of people that have gender dysphoria. Um, you know, where you don't feel that you're the gender that you were born. But the huge spike that we've seen in the last couple of years, I feel is directly related to um, the social media shaping effect that's happening with gender dysphoria influencers that are out there who are not only making this, you know, because there's one thing to destigmatize something, then there's another thing to normalize something, then there's another thing to idealize something. And I feel now it's become idealized to be trans. There are kids in public schools and especially some of the bigger cities where to be trans is the, the cool kids are the trans kids. And so um, Dr. Lippman was a researcher at Brown University. She did a study that was looking at rapid onset gender dysphoria. 
And this is essentially this phenomenon of all of a sudden these teenage girls. Once again, it's these teenage girls who are the biggest consumers of social media were all of a sudden becoming uh, identifying as transgendered. And again, typically, if you're generally transgendered, it happens earlier in childhood. But what she found, Dr. Lippen found, was it was after a spike in their social media usage that all of a sudden they're identifying as transgendered. And what we're seeing in my treatment program, we've had several people that have come in identifying as trans, and they were also diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, which in and of itself has baked in uh, an identity confusion piece. And, and there's also very black and white thinking that's tied into it. I'm, I'm convinced, by the way, that the um, polarizing algorithms of social media where things are either black or white, and you know we see the political divide in our country today, I'm convinced that social media has made our society essentially borderline, where we're, uh, the vast majority of people are not nuanced thinkers. Gone are the days where you can have a critical thinking skills and you can have an evolved debate with someone from the other side of the political aisle. Now it's just lizard brain, reactivity, black and white, and our young people who are being raised in that are now they're baked in to be reactive, black and white thinkers. Oh, oh, and guess what? Maybe I don't know what gender I am, too, because that's what all my influencers, they're, they're all gender diverse. And so we've not just destigmatized, not just normalized, but now we've idealized this new phenomenon that I think a lot of our kids are, you know, let's face it, it's monkey see, monkey do. And I think part of this... Without denying that there's a real real thing called gender dysphoria, I think uh, the spike is due to this, uh, what I call pseudo-gender dysphoria, that it's socially, social media-baked gender dysphoria. You mentioned uh, very early when we first started about sleep, and I know there's a lot of research I've read just about how screen time disrupts sleep, generating chemicals in your brains to fool yourself. Talk about how people should separate themselves in the evenings from technology. Yeah, so good sleep hygiene is like no screens before three hours before you go to bed because the blue light of a screen, and there are blue light blocking filters as well, but the blue light of a screen uh, uh, for our brain simulates daytime. And so their circadian sleep cycle gets disrupted because we go into the state where we're confused about night and day. And so this perpetual light uh, confuses our natural circadian sleep cycle. And so even if we do fall asleep at night, we're not going into that deep restorative sleep. So oftentimes many of us are what's called wired and tired. We're sort of overly simulating ourselves being you know, on our phone or something right before bedtime. We may pass out, but we're not going into that deep REM sleep. And so then we wake up feeling sluggish and tired. And so it's like anything else. Like they say, don't drink coffee before bed. Don't work out 10 minutes before you go to sleep. So you don't want to do anything that's overly uh, stimulating uh, before bedtime. You know, dark room, no TV or electronics in the bedroom, that kind of thing. That's all part of sleep hygiene. The other day, there's a, a walking trail around the lake behind our house. And um, my wife pointed out the window and said, isn't that cute? And it was a dad and a son looked like he was four or five. And they both have phones and they're walking around the lake and their faces are both buried in the phone. And I'm like, no, that's sick. <laughs> and, she, and she like 
jumps back and she's like, why are you that way? And she's like, it's like father, like son. I'm like, yeah, they're walking around the lake. There's like geese and snakes and birds and muskrats. And you're out in nature and you're both looking at your phones. Why don't they enjoy life? And you can go to Yellowstone and kids have their faces buried in their phones. And so I think it's okay to be a dinosaur parent. One of my boys is on here and they all told me I was the only parent who didn't let their kids do these things, but it's okay to be a dinosaur parent, isn't it? Well, yeah, in that sense, you know, the one thing I remind people is that Sergey Brin and Larry Page, the Google inventors, were Montessori students. Jeff Bezos, you know, Mr. Amazon was a Montessori student. Montessori kids are very nature immersed and they don't have technology until they're 13. So it's it's people find it interesting that the greatest thinkers and the greatest innovators in the digital age were had pretty traditional childhoods. And, and that tells us a lot in the same way that Steve Jobs didn't let his kids have iPads. So it's like the drug dealer that doesn't let his kids use his own supply. Um, it, when you, you tell me that story about the lake and the screen, it's, it breaks my heart when I hear that, you know, there should be, you should be really mindful and present in nature, which is so healing and um, not just healing, but helps you grow and your I don't want to go off topic, but there was a really fascinating study on indigenous kids. Uh, Marsha McCulloch was a social psychologist. She looked at indigenous children that were raised, you know, primitives, right? Uh, Pre-industrial societies. And they had not only a 30% higher sensory acuity where they were, you know, because kids raised in nature, they can tell subtle nuanced changes in that twig was cracked and they're really aware of their environment in a way that our screen addicted kids are not our kids are like kind of numbed out by their screens too much stimulation but these kids these indigenous kids when they put them in uh western educational classroom settings they were able to learn at twice the fast uh, twice the rate that westernized kids were their minds were more sponge-like and more receptive to knowledge because they were so observant and nature immersed where our like i hate to say our dumbed down, screened out kids are desensitized to all this. They don't pick up things the way some of these quote-unquote primitive kids can. It was a really fascinating study by McCulloch that looked at these, the ability to learn of pre-industrial children. Well, I really appreciate you joining us and, and really especially appreciate the book and the information you're providing to people to prepare them for these dangers that are all around us, the drug dealers in our home and in our pocket now. Yeah. And it's uh, pretty scary when you read this research and you just look around. I mean, it, it's intuitive. You look around, you go into a restaurant and see a whole family of four or five sitting at the table and they're all looking at their phone. And I wonder right. why did you go out to eat? <laughs> You're right. not talking to each right. other. Why don't you right. experience a little bit of life? So we see it going on. Yeah. I think what you've captured is just how dangerous it is for us. Yeah. And just how much it's how rapidly this has always happened. You know, that phenomenon of sitting at a restaurant alone together, looking at our screens, that wasn't happening 10 years ago. This is not the way, you know, some people just say, well, this is just the way things are now. But, but, but don't we have a say in that? Don't we have, can't we pump the brakes on this a little bit? Yeah, that's my message. Let's slow this down, at least for the kids, a little bit. Um, But thank you 
uh, for having me on as a guest. And I really appreciate it. It seems like you've got a great bunch of people on your on your show here. And uh, it was really nice connecting with all of you. Thank you. It was a great conversation. Can't wait to see your new book. And uh, good luck with your continued work. Digital Madness, available on, unfortunately, Amazon, right? You got to dance with the devil. <laughs> and that's September. Is that right? It's out in September, yeah. September. Yeah. All right. We'll be watching for that. Well, have a good week and have a good weekend, everyone. It's great to see you all. And we'll see you again next week. Great. Thank you. Bye, everybody. I hope today's conversation with Dr. Carderis better prepared you for the challenges of addressing technology and potentially technology addiction in your own life or the lives of your family and friends. This is a serious challenge that we're still in the early stages of fully understanding, but we can be proactive now and make a difference. You can order Glow Kids from your bookseller, and remember in September to order Digital Madness by Dr. Carderis as well. You can learn more about Dr. Carderis' work at drcarderis.com or omegarecovery.org. Let's get after it. Be courageous, be strong, be resilient, and never give up. I'll see you soon.